All right. Good morning, beloved. Who's ready to get into God's Word today? All right. For those of you who are, open your Bibles. Turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, we are in a series called Hope in the Midst of Suffering, a study through Peter's first epistle. This morning we return to verses 12 through 19 that we started last week. This is uh, part two of a sermon. I'm calling Sharing the Sufferings of Christ. And I uh, warn you today, these are some challenging verses, so get ready. I want to begin by reading our text once through, and then we can uh, seek to apply it as I've broken up the back of your bulletin. You'll see uh, four nice, easy sections for us to consider. Well, let's start this morning by... Um, Reading our verses, 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. This is the reading of God's living and infallible word. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, uh, before we dig into this text, I, I want to remind you um, once again uh, who Peter is writing to. Um, we saw all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1, Peter is writing to God's elect exiles, the chosen of God, who are scattered throughout the provinces of Asia Minor, a region at this time which was under the rule of the Roman Empire, Christians have been falsely blamed for the burning of Rome, which happened July 19th, 64 AD, right around the time when this letter was written. And consequently, they were despised and rejected by this patient, uh, pagan culture. In fact, the next 200 years, they endured some of the most severe persecution. But it started here. It says in chapter 1, all the way back in verse 6, speaking about this glorious salvation they had received in Christ. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In chapter 2, verse 12, Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we see here they're already being slandered as 
evildoers. 1 Peter 2, verse 19 says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And uh, the implication here is they're already suffering unjustly and continue to endure. In verse 20 it says, For what credit is it? If when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you examples so that it might follow in his steps. So we see how Christ has suffered for us, leaving us an example on how we are to follow. So the point is, um, we look to Christ. Christ is the standard on how we are to endure unjust suffering. Christ is the standard, and we follow in his steps. Chapter 3, verse 9, Peter continues with the scene, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. These are tough words here. The implication is this. They, they were doing evil to these Christians, and Peter says they weren't to retaliate. On the contrary, they were to bless that you may obtain a blessing. Verse 14, if you continue right down, it says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, every chapter, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So again, Christ is our example in suffering. We are to arm ourselves with that same way of thinking. And what is that? A, a willingness to die for righteousness' sake. Um, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, as Christ said, being faithful to the Father and the Father's will, no matter what. Not my will, but yours be done, he said to the Father. And it says at the end of verse 1, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So when we arm ourselves with that same kind of thinking that Christ had in suffering as a, a refining effect on us, not that we um, cease from sin altogether, but it sanctifies us in the Lord as we share in the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, Paul says. And then, of course, in the last chapter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So, as you can tell then, in every chapter, there is some reference to unjust suffering. All right, the church at this time um, was facing horrific persecution. And we've discussed this throughout, but um, truthfully, this was um, nothing new. Um, just days after the launch of the church in Pentecost, hostility and persecution exploded right along with the spread of the gospel. In fact, those two went hand in hand. We read last week in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were brought before the Sanhedrin council. They were arrested for preaching the gospel in the public square. Then in Acts chapter 5, they arrest all the apostles, only to be 
uh, freed supernaturally overnight by the angel. But then they're brought in again, beaten, and told, stop preaching in that name. In Acts chapter 6, Stephen is seized by the elders and scribes of the temple. By Acts chapter 7, he is the first martyr of the faith recorded as the religious leaders stoned Stephen to death. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, opens by saying, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And it is there we meet a guy named Saul in verse 3, who was ravaging the church, entering house after house as he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So whether it was Saul or the uh, religious leaders of Israel or any number of pagan rulers, um, since the first spread of the gospel until now, Christians have always been persecuted. So we're not surprised then that here in verses 12 through 19, Peter once again revisits this familiar theme as he's concerned about suffering for righteousness' sake, suffering for your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And whether it's through um, humanism, uh, atheism, um, the occult, any wide range of false uh, religions that are out there, our own nation will eventually become the prime persecutor of the church. And so what Peter is saying here is we'll very likely speak to us today in these verses, if not immediate in our lifetime, certainly in our children's, for we already see it as now, as our nation becomes more and more intolerant to the Christian faith and its quest for fulfilling its uh, all moral lifestyle, we will become a greater and greater threat. So Peter's words must be heeded as already there is growing persecution against those that name the name of Christ. We are living in a day when those who live boldly for Christ and who um, confront the, the culture find themselves under great distress and persecution. Um, I'm in constant contact with our brothers and sisters in India, the church that we support, and they are actively being hunted through the religious falsehood of Islam. Um, and if they are caught, preachers disappear, their heads are locked off, and their children and church are often burnt. It is something that we must all be ready for. And in order to be ready for it, we, we really need to take to heart what the words Peter here gives us and what is our response when we face unjust suffering. By way of just quick review from last week, the first point in this um, wonderful summary by Peter is to expect it. That was the, the message um, from the first point last week. I expect suffering. You'll do a lot better if you're not surprised by it, but rather you expect to suffer. Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised, expect it. And notice what God does with it. It says it comes upon you to test you, to, to prove to you the genuineness of your faith. First Peter chapter 1, verse 7. 
And then remember that word we looked at last week for fiery trial. It's the Greek word perusos, and it means, yes, to burn, but uh, more commonly to refine. It's used elsewhere of a, a furnace melting down um, metals to purge it of impurities. Psalm 66.10, the psalmist says, For you, O God, have tested us and have refined us as silver is refined. So this um, fiery trial is being used here as a sort of a, a symbol of the affliction that the people are under, though on the other side of it, God is using it. God is using it as a process to both um, purify and to refine his people through the suffering we see. Just as men use fire to test gold, to distinguish whether it's real or authentic or not, Peter says you likewise are being tested through fiery trials and you have proven to be genuine. He wants you to have your calling in election sure. Therefore, he allows suffering inevitably into your life to prove and to test the genuineness of your faith. If your faith isn't genuine, then like the seed thrown on rocky ground in Mark 4 we saw last week, where there wasn't much soil, you may show um, some quick signs of faith at first as it springs up quickly because there's just a little bit of soil for that seed to sprout and go through. Um, but when the sun arose the next day, it scorched it because it had no root and it withered away. Jesus says in Mark 4, 16, these are the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. But since they have no root in themselves, when tribulation and persecution arises on the account of the word, immediately they fall away. They bear no fruit. So the fiery ordeal will show you the reality of your faith. Okay? Expect it. It's in God's purpose. Secondly, number two, and, and this is, well, they're all hard ones, I guess, but this one gets a little, little harder. Peter says rejoice in it. All right? Rejoice in it. And um, you can interpret this to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Um, but even in the testings, um, I think Scripture will convince you um, there's room to rejoice even in that. Verse 13 and 14 but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed, when he returns. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So again, we're just sort of reviewing these. We went through last week as you're faithfully suffering and experiencing um, persecution for the name, right? That's what it says, for the name of Christ, circle that, Peter says, rejoice, for you are blessed. But how, Peter, how on earth, right, is this possible? Because he says, you will experience a supernatural fullness of the presence of God that he calls there in verse 14, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And we saw the example of this in scripture in the person Stephen last week. For even as he was being unjustly uh, persecuted by his enemies as they dragged him outside of the city, gnashing their teeth, picking up rocks to stone him to death. What does Stephen do? Does he panic? Does he cry for help? No, he peacefully calls out to the Lord. He says, Lord, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cries out then in a loud voice, probably so all of those accusers could hear through all that hatred and, and yelling 
And he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He forgives his enemy just as his Lord did. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So, beloved, yes, you can rejoice now because um, you'll greatly rejoice then when Christ's glory is on full display, when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess it. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen to the words of our Lord in Luke 6, verse 22. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Listen to this. Be glad in that day and leap. Leap. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. And so, yes and amen, we rejoice. And again, I do say rejoice. Beloved, we can rejoice. We can because the future reality is, is that as we share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings now, we are gaining an eternal reward in glory, which will bring us an eternal joy in Christ. In fact, it was this truth which caused the Apostle Paul to say in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so, beloved, leap for joy in the midst of your suffering because you can anticipate that eternal glory will come to you by the grace of God. And just what a tremendous promise this is. And so... If you want to be victorious in Christ through unjust suffering, number one, expect it. Number two, rejoice in it. And now we get into number three. We need to evaluate our suffering. Evaluate it. Um, evaluate why you're suffering. All right? <clears throat> Notice what it says in verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Um, four evils that are, are mentioned here that really are typical of an unregenerate lifestyle. And they're used to illustrate the character of unacceptable suffering. Now, suffering for the name of Christ must not be confused with suffering as a consequence of our own sin. I mean, most of these are quite obvious, but let's just go through these because I think there's a connection with all these that at first might not seem apparent. First, don't suffer as a murderer. If you murder somebody and uh, they put you in prison, um, you're on, on uh, death row or something, you're not going to moan and complain about it. You deserve it. <laughs> you deserve it if you're a murderer. And the same thing with being a thief. You've broken God's law. Uh, this isn't suffering for righteousness' sake. You've broken God's law. Actually, murder and thievery were both capital crimes in much of the ancient world. And Peter adds, or as an evildoer. And this is a, a general term that encompasses every other crime. <laughs> every other one not listed. So essentially the first three words cover all crimes. Don't do evil and then turn around and think that you're suffering as a Christian. You're not. You're not. But then Peter ends verse 15 with a very interesting word. He says, or as a meddler. Now, uh, this word in the Greek is only used here in all of the New Testament. All right? which makes a very challenging word for um, translators to um, define correctly. 
we have no other examples. Um, some uh, say simply it means a, a busybody. Um, somebody who's nosy, always checking into everybody else's business but their own. However, some people think it means more of a revolutionary type, someone who's involved in overthrowing um, the government or someone who wants to um, be a disruptor of society. It's a very interesting word. Alotri episcopos, something like that. It means one who meddles in things not their own. One who meddles in things not their own. We would call them just a troublemaker or an agitator. But why does Peter throw this in here? Wouldn't that just be covered by an evildoer? All right. Um, I think this word has a more specific um, meaning and significance than at first apparent um, appears. Let me give you just a couple uh, scriptures that might help you get a feel for um, the meaning. Um, let's see here. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says to the Thessalonians, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. In other words, don't cause trouble. Uh, don't stir up the society. You're to lead a, a quiet life, attend your own business, um, possibly even do your own trade. Um, again, these are different words, okay, but they give this um, same sort of an idea. Don't meddle in other people's business, all right? Don't meddle in their business. It's not your own. Notice another one, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11. This gives a, a little bit of a different look. Paul says, we hear that some among you are leading an undisp undisciplined life. And what were they doing? They were doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. So, again, Paul is saying there are some of you who are not working, you're, you're interfering with other people's lives. Stop being a busybody. Just back off, get a job, uh, work in quiet fashion, and eat your own bread. So I'm mooching off everyone else. So these verses show us how to conduct ourselves, not so much among the people you know, but at, in society at large. Okay, this affects our testimony for Christ. This is our um, more to the society at large. And I believe that's precisely what Peter's talking about um, here in verse 15 of chapter 4. And you'll recall from earlier in our study, he addressed the same sort of issue back in chapter 3, verse 13, um, with how we are to deal with our civil magistrates. Um, and then again in chapter 2, verse 18, with employers and employee relations, as servants, whenever possible, we submit, submit to their masters. Uh, remember what it said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves to God. I think that's what's going on here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15. All right? Because let's not forget, these are very real people, and as they've been going through unjust suffering for righteousness' sake, let's not pretend that some of them very well may have been tempted, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. No, vengeance is mine. Let's get a couple of boys together and go take out our, our own pound of meat. 
And I'm sure there were groups growing like the Zealots um, who planned on getting their own justice. And some of these um, would have taken place onto the unrighteous Romans, taking the law into their own hands. We're not talking about defense or any war or anything like that. And so some people feel, and, and I tend to agree, that what Peter means here has a special reference to a political agitation. And he's talking here about getting involved in some revolutionary, disruptive activity, uh, meddling with the Roman government. So Peter says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. And this would have surely led to the government taking further action upon them that the people would have suffered greater as Christians. Now, what's the point in even saying all of this? I think this is very important. You are Christian. You are living in a non-Christian society, um, by and large. That's the culture that we live in. How do we respond? Um, do your work, uh, live a quiet life, exalt Jesus Christ, preach the gospel, but don't somehow through meddling or by force overturn the culture. Don't be a meddler. Or if you do and you are being persecuted by the government as an agitator, that is disgraceful. That is not what God has called you to. Um, look at January 6th. What an, what an awful situation to have. That's not honorable as a Christian. So you have to ask yourself, why am I suffering? Am I suffering for righteousness sake? If you are living a virtuous, godly life, presenting Jesus Christ with every opportunity, you are, are giving to work quietly with your hands, being faithful to every task, being a, a noble citizen in every way. You're not disruptive force. And you are persecuted. Yes, it is for righteousness sake. But if you're living an undisciplined life, taking upon yourself to worry about everyone else's business, acting like a busy body, running around, yapping your mouth, slandering other people, telling everyone else how they ought to be, all you really are is a meddler. And that is disgraceful. This is not honorable. So Peter is saying, look, if you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler and the government comes down on you, they take away his don't count that as suffering for righteousness sake. You should be ashamed of that. So you have to evaluate, how did I get here? Why am I suffering? Is it for sin or is it for righteousness' sake? And then verse 16 further supports this uh, rendering of the text. Peter says, yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, in other words, if you suffer for being just a Christian, let him not be ashamed. The implication is this, if you're suffering because you're a murderer or, or thief or a troubling meddler of some kind, you should be ashamed. But if you suffer while you are working with your hands, living a quiet and peaceable life, bringing honor to Christ and all that you do, being the best sort of uh, citizen that you can possibly be, proclaiming faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you suffer for that, let him not be ashamed. In fact, Peter says, let him glorify God in that name. What a verse. Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, Christian. You know, 
they say that the name Christian was first given as a, a um, name or term of derision, um, that followers of Christ would have never been so bold as to use the Lord's name and assign it to themselves, that only after being ridiculed as Christians did they eventually assume the name for themselves. The early Christians spoke of themselves as the brethren. They spoke of themselves as the saints, uh, the, meant the consecrated of God. In the book of Acts, believers are called those of the way, Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. That's a great one too. But here Peter says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. As a Christian, as a follower of Christ, glorify God in that name. Praise God for the privilege. Why? Well, it just gave us three great reasons. Number one, because you're adding to your weight of eternal glory. Two, because you share in the sufferings of Christ. What a privilege. Three, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. All three of those are great reasons. We move on to verse 17, as this is another important verse as we evaluate why we are suffering. Notice what it says in verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Remember... Uh, what Peter said back in verse 7, he said, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. And now here in verse 17, he says, for it is time for judgment to begin. Now, this word for time here is not the word chronos. It's not um, chronological. It's not clock time. It's um, karyos. It means it is the season or the point or the occasion, it is the time for judgment to begin. Now follow this thought here. When the Lord Jesus Christ, in his humiliation, came to earth, he came here to redeem his people from their sins. He came in order to pay that debt. He was arrested, beaten, scourged, tortured upon the cross at Calvary. He died for the sins of his people. And from that moment on, it has been the beginning of the end. We are leaving, living in the end times. And so Peter says, it is time for the judgment to begin. Well, that was uh, like 2,000 two years ago he said that. So when did it begin? It began on the cross when our sins were judged in Christ. And so the sufferings of Christians then are a part of God's plan for an unfolding judgment which culminates then at the great white throne judgment. Follow this thought for a moment. Romans 8 verse 1 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So why then does Peter say it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God? Well, because Peter isn't speaking of condemnation when he uses this term, judgment. He again is speaking in terms of um, testings. Um, chastenings, um, purifyings, uh, purgings. He's saying, in this dispensation, this season, the time of judgment has begun. And to begin his judgment, he first chastens and purifies his church. That's how it begins. But it ends in the final condemnation of the ungodly. 
That's why it says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Jesus said something similar in John chapter 15, 1 through 2. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. The father prunes his branches. Verse 2, every branch in me, Jesus says, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So those are the branches you'll read later in verse 6. They're the ones that do not abide in the true vine. He throws them away. They're dried up. The uh, dried branches are collected and cast into the fire, and they are burned. But every branch, Jesus says, that does bear fruit, he, my father, the vine dresser, prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Remember, apart from me, you can do nothing. So, actually, in both 1 Peter 4, 17, and in the section of John 15, 1 through 6, the people of God are being pruned. They're being purified through fiery trials, you can say, as the church is always in the process of testings as we're being purified for the bride of Christ. So, when you're suffering for righteousness' sake, evaluate it. Is it God purifying his church? Look at that persecution. See it for what it is. Evaluate it. Peter asks if it begins with us, and it does. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? God's judgment begins at the household of God, but it doesn't end there. Peter looks beyond to the tragedy of the eternal judgment. But what's he saying? Here's the point. Get this. It is far better for you to endure unjust suffering and endure it with joy as the Lord purges his church than to endure suffering in the future, which is not only worse, it is eternal. See the point? It's far better that you suffer now as he tests you and purifies you and refines you and molds you for usefulness and glory than that you should not suffer now, but suffer then forever and ever, which is far worse. In fact, uh, Peter asks the question in verse 17, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And I'll tell you what, that outcome is. It is eternal destruction. Eternal destruction. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul kind of sums up this whole thought as he talks about the persecuted church and, and how the church has persevered in faith in the midst of all of its persecution and affliction which they have endured. Verse 5, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. And what he's saying is all this tribulation and suffering that you've gone through is God's righteous judgment. And he's refining you and cleansing you so you'll be considered worthy of the kingdom of God to let us share in the sufferings of Christ as he builds us up for an eternal reward in heaven. It's amazing. And then notice verse 6. 
Paul says, for, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven with his mighty, mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. There it is, eternal destruction. So as we dive into the, the scriptures, you begin to see all sorts of right, sovereign, just, holy reason God has and, and that he allows for his church to go through suffering now in order to refine us and make us worthy of the kingdom of glory. That is later. And there are many in the world who may appear right now to be missing out on that suffering. It seems like things aren't very just. It seems like the evil ones are winning. Uh-uh. Those who appear to be missuffering now will instead endure it for all of eternity. So again, evaluate. Why, why am I suffering? Am I being refined as a part of God's church? Is it for righteousness sake? Are you suffering as a Christian? If so, do not be ashamed, beloved. But let him glorify God in that name. Then Peter supports this point in verse 18 by quoting Proverbs 11.31 in the Septuagint. First, let's read verse 18. Peter says in verse 18, And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Let's look at what he's quoting. Proverbs 11.31 says, If the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? So you see... There, the, it's got the same general idea. But what does Peter um, mean back in uh, verse 18? When he says the righteous is scarcely saved. What's that mean, scarcely? NIV translates it, if it is hard for the righteous to be saved. What, what's Peter saying there? This word scarcely is uh, an adverb, mollus, which simply means um, with difficulty. In fact, if you have a New American Standard Bible, that's exactly how they translate it. Listen to this. And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? And so Peter is reinforcing his point as he refers to the difficulty with which believers will be brought through, the testings that they will be brought through in their final salvation, the fires of refining, the divine purgings and testings and God-ordained discipline as the church will continually experience his righteous judgment upon us until he raptures his church. So he asks, what kind of suffering will they endure if we have to endure this? And the answer is, again, far greater suffering as they will be cast in the lake of fire where the worm dies not, and the fire is not quenched forever and ever. And so ultimately what Peter is doing here is he's helping all of us to see the importance that suffering, in fact, has so then we can clearly evaluate 
What kind of suffering is for the church is for righteousness sake as he purges us of sin. We are then not to be ashamed when we suffer, but let him glorify God in that name. Thank you, Lord. And so when you see yourself suffering, look at it. See it for what it is. Evaluate it. It should be a good reminder of how much more severe judgment could be and will be for those who do not obey the gospel of God. So, how do we handle suffering? Number one, expect it. Number two, rejoice in it. Number three, evaluate it. See it for what it is. And then number four, this is so important. You don't hear anything else. Listen to this. We entrust ourselves to God in suffering. Entrust ourselves to God in suffering. You have to. This isn't a suggestion, okay? You will not make it on your own strength. And by the way, a godless man or woman cannot do that. And you and I can, in the midst of our own suffering, you can entrust it to God. Notice verse 19. It starts with the word, therefore. We always have to ask, what's it there for? It's connecting back to verse 18. Because, therefore... It will be with difficulty that the righteous are being saved. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Here, Peter brings us to his conclusion. Our entire life, including our sufferings, are in the Father's hand. 1 Peter 2 verse 21 said, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so you might follow in his steps. So we're following in our Savior's steps who have suffered for us greatly. And how did our Lord suffer? First Peter 2, verse 23 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The Son entrusted himself to the Father who judges justly. Justly. What does Peter tell us to do in our suffering? Verse 19. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So these sufferings are his intended purpose for his children as he purges and purifies and refines and chastens us to make us an effective witness to the rest of the world to go out and fulfill the great commission of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ as we are being conformed into his image. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, huh, whose will? Oh, suffering according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator. That word entrust, by the way, is a technical word in the Greek, actually. It's rather unique. It's a banking term. Okay, uh, back then uh, there were no banks uh, and very few safe places where uh, a businessman, when he had to leave on travel, could um, trust to leave his money safely. So before um, a businessman would go on a journey, he often left his money in the safe keeping of his closest friend. Such a trust was regarded as one of the most sacred things in life between the bond of these two men, your entire family's savings was with him. And if this word represents such as great trust and, and something that's so sacred between fleshly men, 
How much more is it sacred to our faithful creator? In fact, this is the same word Jesus used in Luke 23, 46 when he said upon the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Same word. Jesus unhesitatingly committed and entrusted his life to the Father, certain that in the end God would not fail him, and so can we. God will not fail you. And as our creator, he knows best the needs of his beloved creatures. And as a faithful creator, we can trust he will meet all of your needs because he is faithful to his promise. Paul declared this while in prison in Philippians 4.19 when he says, And my God will supply all your needs according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So Peter says, Entrust your souls to God. He can sustain you in the midst of your greatest suffering. He is trustworthy. God is faithful. Verse 19 closes with while doing good. And beloved, that's what we'll continue to do. We'll continue to do what is right. We will commit ourselves to God and trusting our souls to a faithful creator. So, when suffering comes to the believer, how do we respond? We expect it, we rejoice in it, we evaluate it closely, and we entrust it to God. You, the dearly beloved of God, can live in the midst of our suffering with that kind of confidence. Okay? Because again, Paul says, because my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. If you are in need of prayers this morning, or if you have any questions concerning the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, please come forward this morning. I'd love to answer them, talk to you, or pray with you. And at this time, I want to invite you to please stand as we praise our Lord. Oh, the blood.